Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. You have a very strange way with words, Johnny. I do? Yeah, you just get yourself into trouble all <laughs> the time. Well, that's just nothing new there. We're actually, well, what are you talking about we're, specifically we're, here? We're talking about difficult, different musical tastes, oh, yeah. musical divergence in the late eighties and early nineties. I have a, an eclectic taste. You do know you have a you know what you have you have a big round what do I say arse. <laughs> don't don't worry don't we know we're listening to a song that North Circular actually will play out with this song. Okay, reminds me of London early nineties mooching around. Yeah, lovely. Anyway, what's the crack? Well, good head. Yeah, it cracks my... I have to say, just before I came down here, I was looking at the news and looking at India. Okay. And it's horrifying. Yeah, it really the COVID is. figures are horrendous there. But the, the, the main hospital in Delhi has essentially collapsed. They've just too many cases? Way too many cases. They can't... There's queues of people trying to get into the hospital and they're dying on the trolleys outside trying to get into... Just to get a bit of oxygen. Well, I mean... You and I have both been in Delhi, and I mean, even in the best of times, it has that feel that if anything goes wrong here, yeah, oh, this yeah. this yeah. city yeah. will just collapse. I mean, it, it has that mental feeling. Well, it's it's it's, it's the madness. Old Delhi is the most extraordinary place mm. you can ever go, but it's teeming. I went there last year, uh, just before the, the 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 pandemic, and you really have a sense of we're two or three moments away from catastrophe here. Yeah. In everything. Yeah. And COVID must be a disaster for them. Absolutely. They also have an election going on and Modi continues to electioneer. So there have been these huge, huge, huge rallies. Why is it that the countries that seem to have very right-wing nativist kind of leaders, such as Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and Trump when he was there in America, all had the worst figures, the worst performance in dealing with COVID. Well, because it's because it's the worst attitude, right? Mm. And their attitude is that uh, the individual is entirely sovereign, and the community is subservient to the individual. So, if the individual wants to do something, he or she should be allowed to do it. So, something like social distancing is an anathema to them. Now, in fairness to Modi, I think the Indians tried it, but you and I have been, you can't social distance no, in can't. India. There's you too can't. many people. You can't, yeah, I can't, can't. do it. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking. Like COVID, you know, I was, 
imagine in Varanasi, where they are bathing in the Ganges. Mm. Thousands, millions of yeah. people making pilgrimages all the time, right? Cheek by jowl, they're burning bodies, they're throwing bodies in the river. You know, you can't social distance in a yeah. country that has got billions of people. You yeah, just can't I mean, do it. Chinese managed it, but the Chinese managed it in such a way. I mean, the difference between China and India is amazing because when you arrive in China, you feel you're in a really modern country. And the infrastructure is amazing and the train system is mm. amazing and it's all organized. And I know this sounds crazy, but China doesn't feel overwhelmingly populated, even though it is. Really? When you're there, yeah, it doesn't. Oh, I've never been. You don't have China. the same feeling. It's much better organized. It's There's a sense that somebody is orchestrating from the top and yeah. that the system works. Whereas India is just chaos. Yeah, it is chaos. I mean, when I was there, there's, what, a billion and something people in India. And I think I actually met them all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're going to talk about the magic and the beauty of numbers. I know you're going to just glaze over. Mm, it's me. Can't it's... wait. This is going to be a humdinger. <laughs> they are fascinating. But I, it came to me because uh, this week I was reading the FT, and, and the FT of an amazing journalist, a guy called John Byrne Murdoch, who's putting together all these COVID incredibly brilliant statistics yeah. and giving you a sense of what's going on in the world and where countries are vis-a-vis -vis everybody else. But what really always annoyed me about lots of British publications, they never put Ireland in, ever. The Economist <laughs> yeah, doesn't, yeah, yeah. the FT doesn't, even though they sell loads of papers here. So you've got like Denmark and Luxembourg and Norway and all these countries, none of us. So I was on Twitter a little bit saying, Chippy. Chippy, so I just texted it. <laughs> FT, I know we're very small and we're just beside you and we're not that important, but please put us in. And he texts me back to it, absolutely. So now the FT is using Ireland. We're in their data. Oh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Exactly. Come on, As a result of my, on. yours indignant, Dunleary. No, because the, the thing about data and statistics, John, is it allows you paint pictures. It's a window on the world. And I know that you're going to glaze in over mm. here, but... I'm not, I'm not really, but go on. So we're going to talk to Tim Hartford, who's a great, great UK economist yeah. about data and data purity and how you can use it. But data actually matters. And what we're going to talk about today is why data matters. Okay, so we're talking about data, Mac. Yeah. And the whole story of COVID has been numbers. Stats coming out our ears. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, it, it, in pretty much every country, there has been the daily update of figures and stuff. Yes. And it's, it, it's like a blizzard of numbers. Yes, it is. It is. And if you're into numbers like me, yeah. it's fantastic. But that's when I glaze over. I know you're accusing me of glazing <laughs> over at numbers, I do. So talk us through the significance of... Of the, numbers. Of numbers and... and, and you counting know, how, and arithmetic and all these things. Well, I've always thought, and I know this might sound weird, certain people will judge a society's sophistication from their culture and their art and their music and mm. their literature and their poetry. So when you talk about the Greeks, for example, you talk about, you know, let's talk about philosophy, let's talk about democracy, let's talk about all these things. All those things are important, but I actually think the most sophisticated societies in the world have historically and now been defined by good data. I know this sounds really weird. Right. Good statistics, right? Yeah. But statistics are a sign of sophistication. And if you can measure something, and if you're prepared to measure something, what you're actually doing is you're being quite open and transparent about your system, right? And therefore, the most nefarious societies 
and regimes are the ones that manipulate numbers. Sure. And the most open regimes are the ones that give people, like, this is happening, this is where it is, this is where you measure. And what I've always been fascinated with, when, when I was a kid, you know, looking at numbers, they, I used to paint pictures in numbers. I used to see all these connections and see how they all related to each other. And I, I don't but know, I just... Is that those kind of painting by numbers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number one is blue. Uh, number three is yellow. No, but when I when I started even studying all statistics in university, I I, I I was completely alive to them because you could you could see stories, you could see where you were relative to other people, you could get to the pitch of the discussion really quickly. You you could say, look, here is the yeah. evidence, right? Yeah. And numbers are evidence. I, I don't believe. I'm not one of those data people who believes that a blizzard of data is essential to make your mind up about anything. I think you can mm. go on hunches and ideas. And I also sometimes believe that, you know, if you wait for the proof of an idea, you will wait many, many years. Like all innovations are speculation. Speculation with a gamble is an innovation. But I suppose the difficult part, you know, when you often get into a, a row in a pub about something or other, and then outcome. I the, never get into a round. <laughs> a, a heated discussion. I do regularly, actually. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of the arguments on either side tend to just be based on anecdotal evidence. And okay. then people make up their mind based on an old story that somebody heard down the road or I knew a guy once who blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, but you need the, the data and the numbers well, to actually paint the real picture. Well, I think I think that, that you know, what I what I the first thing about it is that there is a reason why anecdotes are better crack, right? Okay. <laughs> There's a reason why we sing lullabies to children rather than sing algebra to children. Because the human right. mind, if you think about it, the human say, you know, the human mind paints pictures. We tell stories. This is what makes us the animal we are. Yeah. But the evidential clarity or precision of data is something that just embellishes and brings forward or gives momentum to the best stories. Mm. And I think the best storytellers are those who tell the great stories and then say, boom, boom, and give the sort of, and did you know that this is the data behind it? And that's, I think, is a way of telling stories. But the fundamental origin of numbers is fantastic. And why we have various different, what we call base numbers, which yeah. is how you but your your what have you been reading? <laughs> I what you this is this is well I mean I was I've been intrigued like for example you know the Sumerians okay our yeah. friends in Mesopotamia mm. their base was sixty so their entire entire calculus right so like, like even if you if you look at the word calculus it comes from the Roman the Latin calcul which is a pebble because okay. we use pebbles to count mm. right so if you go all the way back you think okay. Where did numbers come from? Why did we start? Why did humans start to count? And the theory is that humans started to count to try and figure out the calendar. To try and to, so if you imagine, you know, in the world before Netflix, John, if you can think about that, mm. right? It's a long time ago. Imagine how much stargazing went on. Think about the world. Yeah, if you're yeah, sitting, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're sitting at the fire, you're in a, you're in a cave, what do you do every night? Yeah. You look at the stars. And, and, and I love looking at the stars too, mm, still. Too. And then what happened was the ancients were looking at the stars and they started to figure out patterns. They thought, hmm, what's this? And there's, a, is there some pattern between the distance between these stars? And is there a relationship between the tides and the moon? And is there a lunar month? And what is that? So stargazing 
is the basis of all mathematics, right? That mm. we actually cite I, there. I would hazard a guess that it was doob that was the basis <laughs> of mathematics. Well, you know, we've been smoking weed for a long, long time. So imagine a primitive John Davis sitting in a cave, skinning up, looking at the stars, waiting for Netflix, but it's not on any, any device that he has at the time, okay? So he's there in his loincloth and he's looking, he's stargazing and he's saying, hey, Macker, you see that star? That was, that was, see that star, man? <laughs> and you see, you see that star, man? That was like over there yesterday and now it's here. And I'm like, man, no, it's not. You say, I swear to God, right? So think, right? You're the original dupe smoking stargazers, right? And they're looking at the stars and then some dude says, no, I swear, there is a relationship. So they start to measure the distance between stars, mm. right? And they're trying to figure out. So it, all calculus, all calculation comes from trying to figure out the calendar. Mm. Calendar is, of course, based on the lunar calendar, okay? Which they figured out was a 30-day cycle. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, then we need, a, we need a number for this, right? We need a number for this. And then they had, they had years and they said, oh, okay, we need another number for this. And suddenly all the numbers begin to emerge based on lunar cycles and calendar cycles on the yeah. tides, yeah, yeah, yeah. on the seasons, on the extraordinary observation that human time was circular until very recently. Now we think of linear time. Yeah. You know, we think of, you know, today, tomorrow and into the future. Mm. But for the vast majority of humans' existence, our time was circular. So it was seasonal. So it just yeah. went around, day followed night, people died after a certain period of time, cells rejuvenated, yeah. you know, flowers died, all that sort of all thing. All the seasons occur every single yeah, year. Yeah, and, and so for, for it was totally normal to con your concept of time to be circular. And it's only with the discovery of, I actually think, money and interest rates and all those sort of odd things in the future that we put a value on time. In fact, one of the reasons why the Catholic Church was so against interest rates, right, usury in the Middle Ages, yeah. is usury was all about putting a value on time. And the Catholic Church said, hold on a second, only God can put a value on time. Right, okay. So, only God, yeah, yeah. so that, was the, that was the philosophical, yeah, 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 yeah. Get it. but if you come back, so then you think, well, why did we end up with 60 minutes it's a really bizarre idea. Mm. So we have we have very different bases, right? We have base 10 is what we use all the time, yeah, right? And that makes a lot of sense because you've five digits in one hand and five in the other. So it's easy to figure out 10. So we started counting with our fingers. That's why we have base 10. What about your toes? Now, interesting, interesting. Go on. What is the French expression for 80? Catervan. Uh, oh, look at you, right? Now, where does that come from? Where does that come from? The Frenchman over there is laughing. <laughs> it comes from four twenties, so it means yes. that the tribes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The tr at a certain stage, the tribes that existed in France before the Romans counted with a base twenty, and that remained in the French language. Ah, That's why okay, they do it, right? Okay, okay. So and then you think, okay, but this base sixty is really weird. Right? The base sixty is really weird because that's sixty minutes. So where does that yeah, come from? Sixty seconds, sixty minutes. That comes yeah. from the Sumerians. They had a base 60 on their basic counting, which was deriving from their observ observation of linear time or lunar time, but also came from the fact that they had a currency based on barley and 60 sheaves of barley was one unit oh, of currency. Okay, right. So right, it's right, all yeah. very odd things. But then you think, okay, why is the number seven 
like the seven deadly sins. Why, right. is, why was seven regarded as such a strange number for the ancients? And it was because you couldn't divide it. So it was like an unusual yeah. sort of number. And and then you think, okay, well, where did all this stuff come from? Where do all these figures and numbers and everything come from? And why did you need to count? And why did you need to quantify everything? Because I think when we start to quantify, we begin to measure. When we begin to measure, we begin to use a part. It's an abstract idea. You mm. use a part of your brain that you're not using in any other way, right? And then when you when you measure, you become logical. Like I happen to believe that money is the reason that the Greeks invented democracy. That the Greeks came oh. to money. Like so if you if you think of the difference between, for example, the great Greek legends of written by Homer mm. were written in the eighth and ninth century before the Greeks had money. And those legends were all about you. I'm really pissed off. You robbed Helen of Troy. She was my, she was my girl. I'm going to go and attack. She's all about pride and, mm. and arrogance and ego and vanity and all those male sort of weirdnesses. And then you think, what happened to the Greeks that 200 late years later, they'd abandoned all that stuff about pride and victorious macho guys. And they were talking about democracy and they were talking about philosophy and they were talking about their obsession with proof and their mm, obsession with quantification. Yeah. And I believe it's coincident with when they started to actually count money, right? Okay. And this gave them a logical, calculated way of looking at the world because suddenly you move from the world of speculation and romance and imagination to the world of counting and linear and logic and, and things that are provable, yeah. right? Which comes back to your point is when you're in the pub, yeah. it's the latter-day Plato who says, and I have the proof. Yeah. And he really spoils the party because you, you can't have loads of points when the argument's over. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So we don't like, we don't like Plato. <laughs> but then you, think, then you think, what about data? How is it used and abused, right? And yeah. the abuse of data is something I want to talk now to Tim Hartford about, because he's one of the, the great sort of UK data guys. He's written lots and lots of books. His latest book called The Data Detective, which is about 10 easy rules to make sense of data. So we'll hold the thought about Plato in the pub. Indeed. Because we all, everyone has a Plato in their gang. Yeah. Right? We Every, have a Mac Plato. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's not me. It's somebody totally else. Let's talk to Tim. Mr. Harford, what's the crack? How are you? <laughs> I'm not so bad. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. Now, let's talk about the data detective, because one of the fascinating things about reading you every week in the FT, first of all, I'm always amazed at the amount of stuff you're juggling, which is amazing. Podcasts and the FT column and now this, this BBC program on vaccinations, but always, you know, what I lo love about reading your stuff is you make data come alive, right? Which is bloody hard. Tell me, what is your main message in Data Detective? So this, uh, we should be clear, the, the title of the book in Ireland and the UK is How to Make the World Add Up. The Data Detective is the US-Canada edition. It's the same book. So please don't buy a copy of each and then send me... I mean, please do buy a copy of each, but don't, don't send me complaining emails when you do. So, so okay. what, what is the message of the book? Um, the book is trying to help people think more clearly about the world. Now, I believe statistics are an essential tool for seeing loads of stuff about the world that you just can't see with your own eyes because the world's a big place. And when, whether you're talking about the national economies or whether you're talking about this virus, you can't see anything. You can't understand anything unless you have solid, robust data at your fingertips. But that said, 
if the last five years present, it's that a lot of what people believe is governed by their emotions, by their political prejudices, by what their friends think. And so I realized I can't just oh, look at the data and data are important. I had to write a book that helps you think more clearly about data by helping you think more clearly, full stop. So, so let's look at this because, I mean, when you look back like four years and you go, we don't like experts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What you have is an attack on measuring things at one level. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, every civilized society has got good statistics. In fact, a sign of an uncivilized society is that they have bad statistics. They have very, very poor ways of measuring. Yeah. And, and again, it, it sometimes goes with poverty. It sometimes goes with... So, you know, when you look at societies, if they are measuring exactly, there's a transparency, there's a story that they're telling as long as you can look and decipher data. But as you'll also know, there's a great expression, which is every statistic has an agenda. Yeah. And how do you actually disentangle the agenda from the hard fact? So I would give three pieces of advice, three C's. I mean, the, in the book, there are 10 rules, but we haven't got time to do 10 rules. So let me give you the three C's. Number one is calm. So the moment you see a statistical claim, or, or in fact, any claim, a newspaper headline, Facebook post, whatever, just take a moment and notice whether you're having an emotional reaction to it. Does this make me think, ah, oh, yeah, I always knew, or this proves I was right. Does it make you think, oh, those buggers, I can't believe they've done that again. Or whatever it is, are you in denial? Are you jubilant? Are you angry? Are you afraid? Whatever. Just notice that and then go back and have another look. Because having noticed your emotional reaction, which is an overwhelming influence on what you then believe and disbelieve, having noticed that, you're in a position to think more clearly. So that's your first C. Second C, context. Get the context for the number. And that means a, a various, you know, various different things. So the most basic piece of context is what is actually being measured. Give me an example. Give me an example. Yeah, a simple example. The, as the first wave was building, every day we had British politicians appearing on t uh, television, I'm sure it was the same in Ireland, and say, this is how many people have died today. But actually it wasn't how many people had died today. It was how many people had been reported as having died today. And actually, the deaths had taken place two days ago, three days ago, sometimes a week ago. Which might not, you might think, well, that's just kind of splitting hairs. But no, it's a big deal because we're in the middle of, a, of an exponential pandemic and deaths are doubling every week or so, actually every four or five days. So every time they stood and said, this is how many people died today, was an underestimate, probably by you know, 50% that all those numbers should have been twice as high. Uh, so context means understanding what is actually being measured. But it also means what's the trend? What happened last week? What happened last year? Uh, it means comparison. So what, can I compare this? So whenever you say, well, how many people died today of COVID? It's just useful to have a sense in your head, well, how many people die every day for, from any condition? Not trying to exaggerate COVID, not trying to minimize COVID, but just trying to understand it. Now, I, now I've, okay, I see what this is like. So that's the second C, get the context, you know, and, and, that, and that, by the way, includes, you know, who is telling me this and why are they telling me this? Yes, absolutely. And the, and the third C is curiosity. So curiosity is really behind everything in the book. It, it's basically that saying, I I'm not looking at these numbers because I want to win an argument. I'm not looking at these numbers because I'm trying to persuade anybody of anything, including I'm not trying to persuade myself of something. 
The reason I'm looking at these numbers is because I want to understand the world. The world's an incredibly interesting place. I mean, this is why I'm an economist, but why you're an economist, because you know, the, the economy yeah. is a super interesting system. Like it's, it's so human and it's so weird and complicated and it, it really matters. And that's true of the world more generally. So be curious. Don't look at these numbers as possible weapons that you can use in order to inflict some political injury on somebody. Absolutely. Absolutely. They are windows onto the world. They are there to gaze through and see the rest of the world more clearly. And if you view them like that, in that curious spirit, that's going to help you. So those three C's, calm, context, curiosity. Tim, can I ask you before we go, how could we teach? I'm always intrigued. Of course, I teach at Trinity and I'm always intrigued at being able to communicate and teach better. So what you've said is, you know, statistics are a window on the world, right? And the world is a fascinating place. And they give you a bird's eye view, which contrasts with your own day-to-day experience. That's the first thing. Secondly, they give you a context. Or you should look at them in, why am I looking at this in what context? And third, as you say, all of us react emotionally to something that validates our own opinion or aggressively denigrates our opinion. How would you go about teaching this? Because, for example, this podcast is listened to by a huge amount of students, huge amount yeah. of students who are studying economics in university, They're obviously studying statistics in university. And I can get the sense from lots of the Patreon discussions we have with them that they're not, they're not finding the exciting part they don't find statistics exciting. How would, you, how would you tell that story better? Well, I mean, storytelling is an important part of it. I mean, you, you know I love stories. I've got, I've got my own podcast, Cautionary Tales, which is basically, I'm going to give you some social science, but the social science is going to come in the form of a story of something going really badly wrong. And we all like a story of something bad happening to somebody else, right? So, so people listen to the stories. And then halfway through the stories, suddenly I'm, I'm into the Dunning-Kruger effect, or I'm into uh, accident theory from safety engineering, or, you know, I'm talking about the efficient markets hypothesis or or whatever. There's the social sciences there. But you, by the time you get there, you're, you know, you want to know how the story is. Yeah, you're you're vested in a character. You're saying, okay, what happens next? Yeah. So, so I I love, I love the storytelling. Um, And of course, it's it's not so totally straightforward to, to, to be a university teacher and to be constantly telling stories. Uh, you've got to cover the material, you've got to cover, cover the technical skills. But hopefully what I do and what you do as well is a, is a complement to that. Uh, another thing I did, and again, it's the stories with economics, Undercover Economist, my first book, is just me wandering around the world going, huh, that's, that's interesting, that, the price of that coffee or the fact that there's a traffic jam there. Or they, I go into to this branch of Sainsbury's and it's charging me something different from this other branch of Sainsbury's, like, but it's the same company. Why is, why is that? And using those questions as a way to get people involved, get people interested in issues like externalities or price discrimination. And then another project I had was 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, which is a book and, and a podcast series. And there... By the way, I've, ex- I've read them all, so you don't have to tell well, me. You're, no, you're because, very kind. No, no, no it's true. And, and by the way, Cautionary Tales, just for anybody listening, Cautionary Tales is... An extraordinarily interesting podcast. Yeah, C- fiascos, catastrophes, but but it's always stories. So with the fifty things thing, uh, fifty things that made the modern economy. That story is about individual technologies. Who invented them? 
and then what the consequences were. And as you talk through the consequences of, say, the diesel engine or the barcode, suddenly you're talking about economics, but it's not with supply curves and it's not with equations. You're talking about a particular place, a particular time, a particular person. And so that's what I try and do. And well, it works for me. Really, I'm just talking about stuff that interests me. And I just hope if it interests me, it'll interest somebody else. Well, it certainly interests me. I remember we had you a packed house at Kilconomics where you started talking about a gentleman in Germany on a piano that didn't work. If I, yes. if my, if my memory serves me right. And again, Your memory is excellent. And again, I was there. I was, I wanted to be at that concert. I wanted to be in the concert saying, how the hell is he going to, is he going to carry this off? But it's great stuff. Listen, Tim, it's fantastic talking to you. Best of luck with everything. Thanks so much, David. It's been great chatting. Great stuff. Cheers, Tim. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you know, it's interesting that all of the talk, particularly in the tech world now, is all about data, data gathering, data manipulation. They'd annoy you, wouldn't they? They kind of slice it and dice it in all sorts of ways. Yeah. It's really interesting what Tim, Tim was, was saying that, about, you know, it is the window on the world. It's the story. It's, it's a business. Like, you know, when you think of where it all comes from, like we started with you smoking a big, massive spliff looking at the stars. <laughs> that wasn't me, it was somebody else. Right, okay, right, okay. It was a it was a sort of a Sumerian version of John, right? Okay, but again, stargazing. And then you think, well, why do we need to measure so many things? And like, how did the Egyptians make the pyramids? That always intrigued me. Like, yeah. How did they make them stay up? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And how do they make them in such extraordinary precision? Yeah. It's because... Aliens. They, uh, <laughs> right. You do read all that Trump shit, don't you? <laughs> Go on. Go it's because on. of geometry. Yes, Ge- indeed. Geometry, yeah. isosceles, yeah, yeah, triangle, yeah. and all that stuff. Because the Egyptians gave geometry to the Greeks. Yes. And the Greeks pretended it was their own. But then you think, you go back in history and you think, well, why did the Egyptians, why were they obsessed with geometry? And it's a really fascinating story. And this is where, again, all counting stems from the urge to measure stuff. Like the Egyptians were all living in, in around the Nile Delta, which was the most 
fertile part of the world. Yeah. It's hard to um, it's hard to for us to understand that the reason that Mark Anthony went for Cleopatra, not only she was very beautiful, right? Mm, but the Romans wanted to actually that's because you think she's Liz Taylor. <laughs> she didn't it's only the movie, John. She no, 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 she, she didn't that. look like that. Um because it, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world. Now, why is that? It's because the Nile is this amazing river, used to flood every year. And after the floods, this new whole silt and mineral, the whole minerals would be deposited in the land, and the land became much, much more fertile. So you could grow extraordinary things in, in Egypt. Then you think, why was that? Why did, why did the Egyptians become obsessed with counting this sort of stuff? Mm. And it's because the monsoons in the Indian Ocean if you think about where the Nile rises in Ethiopia, yeah. the monsoons in the Indian Ocean, which are a kind of a May to September, August event, yeah. they what they do is the monsoons deposit enormous amounts of water on the Ethiopian mountains. Yeah. And it takes time for that to actually percolate down into the river. But the, the Nile floods every year, and it floods every year on the 15th of August, the Italians call it Ferragosta. And the reason the Italians have this Ferragosta is because the Mediterranean, not only did the Nile flood at the same time, but typically the summer weather broke, all related, of course, in the Mediterranean on the 15th of August. Around then, that was the biggest celebration the Egyptians ever had. Right. Now, it's quite interesting. It was originally was called the, the Day of the Tears of Isis because Isis was the goddess okay. that the Egyptians, and they used to think that she used to cry, which was the flooding of the land. Yeah. And then the Egyptians figured out, well, this happens every year at the same time, so why is this? And this is what they used to go back to try and get geometry. But the reason they got into the geometry of it was that once the land flooded, they couldn't figure out who owned what after the flood. Because all the, the divisions would have been washed away. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they had to figure all this out, and then they could figure out relationships between the various, various different proportions, right? From there, they had to figure out how to make the pyramids, how these various different relationships could be static and could be actually used right. in building yeah, yeah, and yeah. architecture. So what I'm saying is, John, numbers, I knew you glazed over earlier on, <laughs> but we went from Isis, the tears of Isis, to, to Ferragosta, to the whole thing, is that numbers are essential to understanding not just mathematics, but understanding humanity. And that's the story of numbers. Lotar. Like a dog in the rain Bag on my shoulder And a pocket full of change To bust his mercy In the early morning light What did you do On Saturday night Please take me back To where I used to be The road we used to share Together, you and me I can't say For right or true or wrong All I can say is I know where I belong Stars, family of white lines and the Irish Times The men who drink in A-Road pubs and rave flyers All lost in the same sea I hear them say it's all yours, maestro If you're just giving to me, giving to me Suicide bridge in that morning watch The royal fumes and fate wires And the things that pick up and kick off From the roar of the spit on the road To central reservation The rapturous players at the petrol station I love the smell of the fumes coming through the window But you always roll the window up So I have a cigarette and play with a crescendo I never knew, but I had to give it up 
on the wrong side of the window Thought I saw your place, you didn't let me in though These days, say sorry a lot more Never sure, fist the bailiffs at the door But I still walk the same road at night Watch the same rain, melt the same lights Bag on my shoulder and a pocket full of rage How many late nights does it take you to change? Always thought you were holding me back But turns out you were just holding me together Well, I make a move and sound big time crashing though I walked for years in the hills of a hero Suicide bridge and the morning watch The raw fumes and fate wise And the things that pick up and kick off And the roar of the spit on the road to central reservation The rapturous players at the petrol station down over the hill, the lights in the distance glimmering will shine lit up for me and a little for you too, or so I thought. Or so I thought. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.